0: This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. This is Dropping In from Omega Institute, a podcast that explores the many ways to awaken the best in the human spirit. I'm Karen
1: Michelle, and coming up
0: is Winona LaDuke.
1: Water is a spirit. It is not a commodity. It is not something that is to be privatized or over-allocated. It has a life. It has a standing on its own.
0: When Winona LaDuke talks about water, she doesn't mean turn on the tap and it flows. Water is something we take for granted. LaDuke reminds us that water is a precious resource— the stuff of life itself. She lives on the Ojibwe Reservation in northern Minnesota, the Great Lakes. It's water that drives Leduc as she works with Native American communities to push back against corporations and government agencies, asserting indigenous rights to the land and its resources. As we'll hear in this talk she gave at Omega Institute, Leduc calls her work spiritual activism, and she urges us to take action, too.
1: Ani nindawey magenatuk nika goegetemagas binisiko etogo makwendo deyem kawa babani kagish kaninganing indunjabamigwech ato djubwe and I'm uh, it's from the community I'm from I'm thanking you very much for the honor of being here with you today talk about nibi sageging kichumi sibing the waters that are our creation stories and our oral history we, we are the last ones that were created. We are entirely dependent upon all of our older relatives for our lives. And that those relatives may have wings, and they may have paws, and they may have fins. They may live in the water, they may live in the air, but those are our Nindaway Muganatuk, our relatives. And so we always acknowledge that, and uh, the Sibi, the Nibi, the rivers, and the, and the water is uh, our oldest and most significant medicine in our teachings. So that is what I wanted to talk about, is the uh, spiritual teachings about, uh, about our water and how that relates to political activism. Because our spiritual activism, our spirituality teaches us that we must speak for those relatives and that we must uh, take care of those relatives. That is our covenant with the Creator. In our Anishinaabeg community, that is the community that I come from, which is, uh, I come from a reservation in, in northwestern Minnesota, Anishinaabeg people. We are uh, from the Great Lakes region, the northern part of five American states and the southern part of four Canadian provinces. We are indeed a water people because our whole ecosystem, my reservation has uh, 600 bodies of water, in, including 47 lakes on it. So we would be, uh, some people call us kind of the bog people because <laughs> they are not just big lakes, they are just a lot of water, you know, all around. And we are quite um, happy with that ecosystem. And that is uh, part of why we are interested in this issue of water, because that is what we wish to protect, because that's our covenant with the Creator. We got to live in that great ecosystem with all of those medicines in it and all of that water in it, and our responsibility was to take care of that. Um, There are teachings in in our society about who is responsible for what. And I don't want to get into the whole which things are men responsible for and which things are women responsible for, but there are certain roles that we have. And I know that in this society, there's a lot of rejection of those different roles. And in our society, there's a lot of work on retraditionalizing and remembering what our jobs and our responsibilities are, because we kind of forget those when you get industrialized. And when you sit in front of the TV all day, you forget your responsibility. You're more interested in your rights than in your responsibilities quite often. But it is said that women are responsible for water in our community, as our teaching. And it is said that there are four women spirits, Manitou that watch over the water. One is the one who watches over the oceans. That is her responsibility, is to watch over the oceans. One is the one that watches over the rivers and the lakes. And, and from what I can ascertain, uh, from the underground waters as well. That is that one's responsibility, is to watch over the waters that are in the lakes, the rivers, and, under, and underground. There is the one that watches over the waters that are inside of women, the waters that are around the baby in the womb, that cushion the child in the first environment of the child. There is a different spirit, a woman's spirit that is in charge of washing, watching over that, and then there is a fourth woman spirit who is in charge of the rains, the clouds, and the storms, and for cleaning up, after all. So that is our teaching, you know, as Anishinaabe people, as, as water people. So it is an interesting challenge in uh, in industrial society how one reconciles a set of spiritual teachings with the state of the world. How does one reckon with that? How does the woman's spirit who watches over the oceans think of the minings of the oceans, the factory trawlers, the uh, atomic testing in the Pacific, the blowing up of dolphins' brains by the Navy? You know, what is her teaching? What is her belief? What is our responsibility as Anishinaabe people if that is part of creation to her? What is our responsibility? You know. What does she think of the dead zones created by agriculture? The thousand or so from you know the runoff of all the petrochemicals and the oil we slather on anything that grows in this society. What is her teaching about that? Her teaching and her request to us is probably that which you know, which is clean up your mess before you make it. You know, don't do stuff you don't know how to clean up. Don't be greedy. Her answer is uh, found in that which we know. It is not a technolo- just a, simply a technological answer, it is, a, it is an answer that is found in a shift in values, in a shift in paradigm from the society in which we live to a society which is not based on conquest, but indeed instead is a society which is based on survival, which is based on humility. And I talk about these women's spirits and, and our Anishinaabe spiritual practice, but I believe in my gut, and I think that a lot of you probably believe not that different, that it is, not, uh, it is not about a color of people or a culture. It is about us as humans and our relationship to the creator and to the creation. If we as humans decide to lose our humanity, to lose that who we are, And to allow commercialization, to allow the industrial monster to make us into something else where we forget who we are, that we are the the littlest part, the most dependent part of creation, then they win. Then they win. But if we remember who the heck we are, you know, whatever culture we come from, whatever place we come from, if we remember that we are here we are part of creation. We are part of what the creator gave us. It doesn't, you know, I'm, I'm saying these things from our, our culture. But every culture, every, every community, every person who is in this room knows that the creator is, is alive and that water is a spirit. It is not a commodity. It is not something that is to be privatized or over allocated. It has a life. It has a standing on its own.
0: Don't lose our humanity. That's Leduc's rallying cry. Don't succumb to those who would mislead us into forgetting that to survive on this planet ultimately means being humble, having gratitude, and remembering our relationship to the Creator. We'll hear more about that in a moment. But first, a little pitch for Omega Institute for Holistic Studies. For 40 years, Omega has been hosting workshops and retreats on yoga, mindfulness, art, sustainability, women's leadership, health. It's a rich mix. And with this podcast, I'm introducing you to some of the remarkable teachers exploring Omega's mission to awaken the best in the human spirit. To learn more, visit eomega.org. That's e-o-m-e-g-a.org. While you're there, consider supporting Omega's mission by becoming a member. Membership comes with a bunch of perks, including access to special content, like the complete audio of the Winona LaDuke talk you've been listening to. Now, more about water and the power it has to inspire resistance against the forces of consumption
1: and destruction. The spirit that watches over rivers and lakes. She, you know, I think about the, the issues of, you know, this is the East, but the American West. You know, how much can you over allocate a river is a good American question. You know, which is pretty much what we have done. We have created this idea that somehow man's law is higher than the creator's laws. And when we, you know, when we say that, we say how much water is in a river and we allocate it and we allocate it for beneficial use. You cannot even leave the water in the river because that's not a beneficial use of water. You know, which is a huge problem. A lot of native communities in the West litigate their water rights because they have prior water rights to river systems. Then they try to leave the water in the river, and they're told that they can't, that they have to be sold to the highest bidder, basically, on the market. You know, most water doesn't even go to the highest bidder on the market out West. I mean, take the Colorado, for example. It is, like, milked every drop of it before, you know, we wouldn't want any of it to go to Mexico, God forbid. You know, so we just like overallocate every ounce of it, and about eighty-five percent of it is used for wasteful agriculture practices. You know, in places like Colorado, you know, or you know, fountains in Las Vegas and golf greens in Phoenix. The nineteen golf courses in Greater Phoenix use more water than most of the Hopi villages combined. You know, a completely absurd the perception that somehow water is endless, that it will always you know, be there and can always be allocated and over-allocated. So I was working with these, uh, this group on the, on the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota, and this group, um, they were facing a hog farm proposal on their reservation. You know, Bell Farms, they figured out that some of these Indian tribes have, have separate legal rights than states and feds. And so they wanted to basically come in under tribal sovereignty and woo a tribe to take a hog farm operation that would, you know, according to the negotiators, bring in a lot of jobs and a lot of money. You know, all those promises rural communities get. Every rural community gets a promise like that, you know, like the big, the big balloon in the sky or something, you know. So they come in and they want to put out over a million hogs a year, On the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota, which would pretty much mean that the hogs would have outpopulated not just the reservation, the entire state of South Dakota, you know, on Rosebud. So they come in with this idea, and the initial, you know, by the time they started working on it, they, they got all these sweetheart deals negotiated, you know, of course, you know how that works. They got special water allocations. This is a uh, water project. You know, people didn't even have running water on that reservation, but the first ones in line for water were the pigs. You know, that's how it works, isn't it? You, know, you want to get water on your reservation? Promise a corporate farmer some water. And you know, those lines will be coming right in. And at the end of every one of those lines, is going to be some hogs. So the community started organizing, you know. I didn't like this. They, they you know, got wind it was going to stink, basically, you know. And, uh, you know, and they didn't want to be part of that whole process, you know. So this group organized, I like these women, these women, they, but their acronyms is so funny. So they're called Concerned Rosebud Area Citizens, or CRAC, you know. <laughs> I, I'm not sure, you know, I've been trying to work with some of our groups on their acronyms. I was like, CRAC, not the best acronym, but anyway. <laughs> so CRAC goes out and organizes, you know. <laughs> but, you know, nobody thought they could do anything, you know. Oh, but they, they organized, they got some farming groups, the Humane Farming Association to join in with them, and the Audubon Society, and they started this litigation process, which is, you know, I was trying to read the legal briefs, and, you know, I'm not a lawyer, I'm an economist, and I just, you know, it's just totally insane legal processes. I mean, they, you know, I'm someone who believes that the, that the uh, policies and the reality has far outstripped the laws to start with, but the laws are so convoluted. So anyway, they're trying to litigate, and they're litigating back and forth and back and forth about when the lease was signed and how it was signed and who signed it, and, you know, finally. So they get them on the. The, the, the court did rule that the uh, lease had been out of order, but now Bell Farms sued the tribe and said that, you know, well, what about them 96,000 hogs out there? I was ready to just load up my stock trailer and go out there and haul some hogs, you know, back to back to our res and just eat them. But, oh, no, a lot of you are vegetarians. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, but I just thought we'd have the free-for-all, you know? Because it's a, actually they won so far they have won, which is this great thing—the first time that there has been an industrial hog farm closure, based on uh, you know based on this struggle. It's one of the one of the first cases in the whole country, and it was this little group, Crack, with a bad acronym, that basically took on Hormel and these and these hog farms. And in the in the meantime, is you know saving the water out in South Dakota, and so uh, sets a really good precedent for a lot of our uh, our Indian communities. The water inside a woman's body, you know, right here in New York State is one of the best examples of that struggle, which is uh, the struggle of the Akwesasne Mohawk people, the land where the partridge drums, and their struggle against General Motors, and uh, how much PCBs you should be able to dump into the river, you know, is the question. And how long? 25 years of dumping, you know, at what point, which is pretty much the story of every river in New York from what I can ascertain and everything around the Great Lakes. It's just the endless dumping. You know, and so you know, you have one of the richest and largest corporations in the world, and they are—they have their uh, mill, you know, their facility at Messina, uh, right next to the Aquasasni Mohawk community, and they have dumped, you know, PCBs. The proposal was uh, containment. You know, and that is one of those absurd suggestions. You know, containment is basically, you know, cap it and put dirt on it and put grass on it. You know. It does not mean it is not still there, you know. It does not mean it is not going to get into all of your groundwater, you know. And so this community organized, and how they started organizing was was um, by friend Gudji Cook, she uh, uh, a, a midwife. And so Gudji went and started uh, getting uh, uh, both breast milk samples and fetal cord samples of the women in the community to see what they had in their bodies. And, you know, every woman out here knows that we're basically a, a mirror of industrial society. You've got about 500 chemicals you can't pronounce in your body. It's all in your breast milk. It's all in your fetal cord samples. You know, they say 500 chemicals cross into the baby's placenta before the kid is even born in this society. You know? They want to talk about right to life? You know, that would be a whole different discussion. You know? How about, you know, right to some quality? Right, to an environment that is clean. So they started to organize these women, you know, and to organize to get their Superfund their super site cleaned up to get it designated as a Superfund site. You know, because they, they had Myrex, PCBs, you know, DPE, DDT, everything was showing up in these women. And then, you know, so the women stopped eating the fish. The women tried to, you know, eat good and, and try to get their bodies clean. Is what they did, but the question of if we should all have to change our behavior because some corporation refuses to change its behavior is the question that we need to ask in this society. You know, so that as our communities struggle <laughs> over, uh, you know, what it is that uh, is in our water, but um, you know, the overall issues that we face in the Native community, are really a microcosm of issues on on this worldwide scale. And they are really not that different. Uh, They are fundamental issues of dignity. You know, whether it is the dignity of people to live with water that is clean, or, or their bodies are clean, or with the food that the Creator gave them to be able to continue, you know, eating that. It is issues of who should have the right to control life, you know, whether that, that life is, uh, has uh, leaves or whether that, you know, that is our own genetic material. It is the issues of, you know, in the end, I would suggest, it is the issues of this, of this conflict that we have that is, in my humble opinion, not really a conflict between the Anishinaabeg people and the United States or the Hopi and the United States government. And It is really a conflict in worldviews. It is a conflict between uh, land-based peoples, our people who view the earth as their mother, and industrial society. You know, and that is really our our quandary, and that is our challenge: is how we reconcile that. You know, we live in a rich and powerful country, and we are people who need to exercise our responsibilities. You know, to do, to do the right thing. And that um, doing the right thing, from, from the perspective that I come from, is not about doing it uh, just for intellectual reason. You know, it is about doing it because that is how we reclaim our relationship to the creator. By doing that which we were intended to do. By ensuring that we do not make a mess that destroys things for other relatives. Nindaway tuck, by caring for that which we need the most, which is water, maybe, because water is life. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
0: For many years I lived without running water in interior Alaska. So did my neighbors. It wasn't unusual, and because we had to haul water from nearby streams and melt the winter snow, we never took it for granted never used more than we had to to keep clean, healthy, alive. People do this all over the world, traveling miles and hours for fresh water, which truly is precious, and it's running out, while the oceans heat up, rise up, and destroy homes and habitats. Just as Winona LeDuc teaches us about the four female spirits of the Anishinaabe who are responsible for water, she urges us to be active caretakers and protectors. Dropping In is a presentation of Omega Institute, dedicated to awakening the best in the human spirit. If you like what you hear, leave us a review on the iTunes store and tell your friends. It all helps more listeners find us. You can find more episodes of Dropping In through your favorite podcast provider or by visiting our website, eomega.org. The website is also a great place to explore Omega with more of your senses. You can watch videos, read articles, sign up for a workshop or an online course, all at eomega.org. I'm Karen Michelle. Dropping In is written and produced by me. The music and mix are by Scott Mueller. And Rob Harris is the executive producer. Thanks for dropping in.